Welcome to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, the podcast which brings you the latest in science and practice and challenging mainstream medicine and finding new and exciting ways of having a happier and healthy life. This series is looking specifically at mental health. We've become really concerned about the lack of translation of what science knows into what medicine does. In most societies, including the one I live in, one in five of us will have a serious mental health problem at some stage. The infrastructure, the practice, the gap between treatment and best practice is massive. This podcast series aims to do something about it. Prevention is cure. I'm your host, Professor Grant Schofield. In this episode, I interview Professor Julia Rutledge. I hope most of you have heard of Julia Rutledge. She is a nutritional psychologist. I guess she's a practicing clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. And she's most famous, I guess, for her very careful use of randomized controlled trials to discover the effect of micronutrients on mental health. And she has some powerful and fantastic research. She's a very, very careful woman, very careful and fastidious with her research. You're going to love this podcast. We also discuss her new book, The Better Brain, a great read about this exact topic, putting forward her and other people's research showing how powerful a tool diet and especially micronutrient supplementation is for that major unaddressed elephant in the room in society, our mental health issues. Without further ado, enjoy the podcast. Here's Julia Rutledge. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight Welcome, Julia Rutledge. Good to have you on the podcast again. And congratulations on your new book, The Better Brain. It's a great read. Great. Well, thanks, Grant. It's always a pleasure to uh, to talk with you and chat with you about this area of research. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay. So before we get, well, it's actually chapter one in the book. And and I, I did read in a otherwise very, very positive review in Psychology Today uh, this morning where they they slated you on chapter one and said, well, chapter one is so obvious. It's I don't even know why she's covering it and it's boring. It's about this treatment gap. Actually struck me it's exactly the opposite. It's not boring. It's interesting and everyone needs to know about it. So tell us about the treatment gap. Sure. I mean, I, th- I, I think what we did in chapter one was talked about where we are right now. And I, and that's, you have to position a book about where's, where are we currently standing in terms of the mental health crisis and that, you know, how people are going in terms of their mental health nationally and internationally. So you, you got to set the scene. So you got to have a chapter one. 
uh, before you can delve in and start to talk about some new solutions. So, um, I mean, I, I think about the treatment gap as those number of people who are currently not receiving any treatment, um, but who struggle with a mental health issue. And we know in New Zealand, that's a really big problem. And it's, uh, you know, only 3% of the population have access to mental health services. You have to be in the severe range in order to be able to get into the clinics, into the public health system. If you're you're mild, uh, even moderate, uh, you're getting turned away. I, I read stories about you know kids who are not suicidal enough in order to get into into the services. So we know this is a huge problem, and it's got to do with uh, having a lack of professionals to adequately address the mental health issues that are present in New Zealand. There's just not enough of them. Um, is but- it, that's true worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's because if you think about the numbers, I mean, this number that gets thrown around, it's about 20%. You know, one in five of us is struggling with a mental health issue. I mean, that kind of depends on how you want to define it. I mean, I think everybody struggles to some extent at some point in their life with a mental health issue. Do you need to see professional services? Not necessarily, but to sort of acknowledge that struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety can be a normal part of life. We don't have to pathologize it. Um, And so that's, you know, I'm not always excited about, not excited, but thrilled about the way we we throw that number around uh, because it's probably a lot more. Um, than that, who, you know, are struggling in some, in some way. And, and I, I, I just, it's funny how with physical health, we we're okay with everybody is going to, you know, needs to look after their physical health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all need to look after our, our heart health. And we need to make sure that we're, we're, you know, eating adequately to ensure that we don't go down a path of say, you know, type two diabetes, et cetera. But we just don't think about that in terms of mental health. We seem to think that that's reserved to, for a certain part of the population. When that's just not right. It's, you know, we're all there. So, yeah, sorry, do you want to jump in? I was just wondering how it got to be such a gap between professional health and and infrastructure to help. And and also when it's such a newsworthy item and there seems to be quite a lot of investment in in exactly. Well, I wonder if it's because it's been the treatments and the diagnosis, I'm just throwing out thoughts, is that it's dominated by psychiatrists and psychologists, maybe. And they've got their treatment ideas around how to help them. And for some people, those treatments can be really effective. So, you know, you know, for some medications work, I, I would argue not well enough. There's too many people that I've heard of who really don't get it into a place of wellness with medications. In fact, sometimes, I sometimes even wonder if people think I'm, I'm depressed and I'm on an antidepressant, therefore I should be depressed. Like it's kind of, which is an odd way of thinking about it, but I've certainly seen that quite, quite a bit over my career. Um, and psychologists have really pushed hard to introduce the psychotherapy into uh, the mainstream care and good on them. I mean, they've, they've fought for that over decades. But it was, it was at a time, maybe if we think about it, if it was at a time, you know, if we, you know when psychotherapy would have been thrown, you know, it, thrown into the mix would be ooh, 60s, 70s, maybe, at a time when maybe there were fewer people with mental health problems possibly, uh, but they also sort of cornered the market and and really have, have built up uh, barriers to 
people being able to come in and, you know, like wellness coaches or, you know, allied health professionals from being able to offer those, you know, those therapeutic uh, interventions. And they've, and they've kind of created their own little niche, which I don't think has been a great thing for the service of the public. Um, I don't know if you agree with that or, or not. Oh, Grant. I, I, I 100% <laughs> agree with that. I, I mean, there's, there's so many hooks in what you've just said. I mean, I just want to touch on a few of them one at a time. Uh, sure. This is around, I guess, psychiatry and medic medicines and medications. And mm. the thing that struck me when I've been I've been looking at a lot more into mental health in the last year, a lot, lot more. And if I look at our breast practice guidelines, you can look at the bpac.gov.nz. Yeah. Uh, in this country, and it's got quite specific, clear guidelines about the treatment for mild or moderate depression. And, mm -hmm. and even uh, for major depressive disorder, uh, and it's very clear that uh, medicines for mild or moderate should never be the first-line treatment. Yeah, uh, they and, are, and though. It quite clearly and specifically lists out a range of evidence-based therapies which start yeah. with uh, uh, exercise and physical activity. It mentions uh, nutrition and diet. It mentions sleep. It mentions talk therapies and connecting with other people. Uh, yeah, but we don't have enough professionals. That's right. right but we the don't even challenge. have. But even if we don't have the infrastructure, even within the professionals that we have, right? Mm. Well, we don't. Well, we don't have the infrastructure. There's no way. I mean, I I, I train in a clinical psychology program, yeah. and we have over the time I've been here, we have doubled the number of students. We've gone from eight to sixteen now, and we are seriously, seriously struggling with training sixteen clinical psychologists per year, uh, because we don't have the internships, we don't have the placements for them, we don't have enough staff to be able to one on one monitor them and supervise them, which is essential for them to get that that expertise in, in conducting cognitive behavior therapy. So we have a model that requires an enormous amount of investment to train them and an enormous uh, amount of time for them to get through. And so you have a bottleneck in the terms of the number of psychologists you can ever graduate in one year. So when they say we just need more of them and that's the solution, goodness, you need to like do a fairly major more of them, like double, triple the workforce, and still you're not going to adequately get that to that hit that 20%. So we've got a model that, yes, it's ideal, perhaps, although one might argue that still only 50% of people get better with psychotherapy. Uh, so you've got this model where we're in expecting a really intense level of training. Uh, and you will never be able to get a number the number of people needed to 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 adequately hit to be able to service that twenty percent of the population. And it's just it's not it's not achievable, and nor is it a it's it's something that our country can afford. So that's why i I think the better brain kind of it it presents a, a really different way of thinking about mental health to to say, one of the factors and risk factors that are is clear is it's been really emerging over the last decade is our our nutritional foundation. It's it's just been eroded uh, because of the this social experiment of eating ultra processed foods. So yeah. it, if we could just um, address really really tackle that, which maybe that's harder than training more psychologists. I don't know. The solution I've been thinking about is in this uh, health coaching and. And yeah, sort of mental health coaching and community health workers, which is a workforce, and we in less than New yeah. Zealand, and I know it's happening in other countries as well. We see these health improvement practitioners who have some 
training yeah. and there seems to be some evidence that they're achieving something uh, yes. without uh, the level of training of a clinical psychologist, but certainly interacting and being overseen by. Yeah. And we need what, that. What I mean, we that? need that. Oh, I'm, well, I'm all for, uh, you know, saving the, the, the most severe, the, you know, the most severe ones for clinical psychologists, but with mild levels of depression, then absolutely you can open that up to other professionals who've got some, some tra- you know, some training in the principles of cognitive behavior therapy or, or other therapeutic modalities. It doesn't require the really, really intense training that clinical psychologists go through because that's really hitting that those that severe end Uh, and we and we need to be we definitely need to be less protective Uh, turf protection plays probably plays a role in here so uh, you know I think if we could just collectively stand back and just go does turf protection help or hinder the 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 achieving better mental health for our population we might sort of say that it's probably getting in it might sometimes get in the way okay because I'll give you a couple of examples from my suburb if you go to your general practitioner here and you've got a mild or moderate problem, well, there's really no nothing to be referred to other than private. Yes. Uh, and there's a couple of services in my just up the street from me. Um, one uh, more more focused on young people, but young adults as well. Um, and you can expect under that private thing to have a four month wait at the moment to see a psychologist and a twelve month yeah. wait to see a psychiatrist. And you can expect to pay three hundred and fifty dollars an hour for an appointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know that's completely booked out. There's no private um, and having known of a mother who rang the crisis line recently uh, they were asked if she was in danger of, of committing suicide at that moment mm-hmm. uh, she wasn't I mean she was suicidal but not at that exact moment uh, and they said they asked her if she had asked her daughter how she was feeling which I think had actually occurred to her uh, and then they yeah. said well you could go and see your general practitioner so the the service treatment gap of anything coherent is from from a you know, just a parent and a member of society's point of view is quite despairing so far as I'm concerned. I think um, I listened to a, a great talk you did at the University of Canterbury. It was put online uh, recently, and you talked about what the the number that really struck me is you talked about the population of the South Island, yeah. which I think was nine hundred ten thousand or, or something like that. From yeah. memory, am I right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, as, as being the number of people in New Zealand who go who, who Required treatment and half of those. Exactly. Was that, is that, is that what was I right with those numbers? Um, well, that, so so the South Island is a fifth of the population, and that yep. was that was the that was what I was trying to put there. And then I gave a picture then of Christchurch because that's the population of Christchurch is about four hundred thousand, and so that gives you an an idea of the number of people who are not currently getting treatment in New Zealand in any one given year. So it's about forty percent of the population, yep. and so and then I give numbers of the number of psychologists and allied health professionals that we have, and just that and and that's where I came up with that 40% yep. was based on how many there are registered in the country. Uh, it's I think it's about three and a half thousand psychologists and probably, although it's kind of hard to know the number of allied health professionals because they're not all registered, I, I estimated it might be about the same number, but it, yep. it, that may be wrong. But I'm guessing it's about the same. And so there was no way like to then double that workforce to get from, say, 7,000 to 14,000. And, and, you know, we've just increased our, our, our number of students that we train in, in our program, you know, by a few. You're not going to cut it. You just can't get anywhere near with the numbers that you need to really just hit that full array of the like being able to really adequately address that, you know, that phone call from that mother. 
Mm. You just can't, you just, we don't have enough of them. And they're all, I, I, I see them all online, the psychologists, all their private practices, they all say waiting list is closed. Our, our clinic in Canterbury at the University of Canterbury is closed for wait list. So that's a really concerning place for us where the model that we've developed as a society to help people is, is, is just not, it's not, it's not good. It's not adequate. It's just not, it's, it's unfortunately uh, requiring this really intense level of training, intense level of one-to-one work. So we've got to change the model, unfortunately. You know, it might have worked back with Freud in those days of neurosis, but it's just not, it's not it's, working now. It's not going to get there. Okay. Okay. So before we get down to the really deep and dirty on the nutrition, which I know everyone will be looking forward to, certainly I am, I just want to talk about psychotropic drugs. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll test, I'll test your, uh, your, <laughs> what you're willing to say here. Yeah. Because there's quite a lot of controversy, isn't there, especially in, in, in mild to moderate depression and anxiety about, yeah. about the harms versus benefits of, of, of a particular SSRIs. Yeah. What, 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 what do you say when I say there's controversy about harms versus benefits? Uh, well, I think some people still think that that's the best line of treatment, and I suppose that's where the controversy comes from because others are now challenging whether or not that really is the case. And it's it's a it's a big debate amongst researchers as well. Is like well, and, and I think about this a lot. I think well, there's this issue of if you look at mild to moderate. One of the reasons why they say that is because there's no really no group difference between those who are randomized to an SSRI versus those who are randomized to a placebo. So very, very small uh, and not a clinically significant group difference. Sometimes it might be statistically different, but it's not really that clinically meaningful. So, so people talk about like perhaps a two point difference on a 50 yeah, very, point scale. Very, exactly. Very small. But on the flip side, what we it does work for some people in the mm. sense that when you go on an antidepressant, some people people do get better, and I and I certainly don't want to minimize that. And I think when people say the antidepressants don't work, they're they're over they're overlooking the fact that actually they they people do seem to show benefit, but no better than placebo. So how? And, and then you might say, well, that's the only way we can harness the placebo effect is by giving people an antidepressant because you can't, you, you, how do you trigger the placebo effect without giving somebody a pill? So it's, and then, and then, so some people might say, well, that's okay, then let's just give them an antidepressant because that's how we can trigger the placebo effect. Yeah. But then that the flip side of that, and maybe where the controversy also falls in here is that the side effects are becoming more and more pronounced over time in that we're becoming more and more aware of them. They're not new, they, but we're just more aware that people really, 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 really struggle to get off of, some people really struggle to get off of these drugs. So I think the numbers are something like 50% of people experience withdrawal coming off of a drug and about half of those experience that as severe. I really, to the point where people won't come off drugs because it's okay. so it's, unpleasant. And there's a problem, so let's take... One SSRI, so venophylaxine is an interesting yeah. one. So yeah. you look at some of the side effects, and there's a known side effects, are, you know, uh, insomnia and nightmares, these sorts of things, suicidal yeah. thoughts. Um, generally, not things you want to accompany your treatment. No, um, no, and sexual dysfunction is one that often people don't talk about. Yes, yeah, so that's, a, that's really a good big point problem. as well. But part of the problem is when you're coming off them, the withdrawal exacerbates those yeah. side effects symptoms. So yeah. then people will get the feeling that, in fact, the um, SSRI was masking those symptoms in the first place yeah. when in fact that's not the case right 
Yeah, well, that's definitely the old way of thinking about it. Um, it, like a sort of, and, and I can understand where people would come from if they're thinking that what those these drugs are doing is correcting this chemical imbalance, which is something that's being propagated by the uh, the drug companies as an explanation as to why SSRIs work. Uh, that might also add in, into your co the controversy that you talk about because you know whenever anybody says to me they have a chemical imbalance and that's why they have to take an SSRI, I, I say. Did the doctor do an, a, a level of your serotonin? I, I'm just really curious. Did somebody, do, well, and then they're kind of a, a little bit kind of maybe taken aback, but that's the story that it's a story that really comforts them, I think, and so, so, and, so and, the, the, and provides that evidence, like sort of that I my brain is broken and therefore I need this drug. So and you that, don't buy into the, this mono I mean, serotonin imbalance hypothesis? I, I probably don't. Um, I, I, I don't think like it's, it would be kind of, I, I, I think a better way of thinking about it is kind of thinking about it like alcohol. So, you know, alcohol has an effect on our brain. It has an effect on our neurotransmitters. It, it's going to, it plays around with that's what's happening. We become less, uh, you know, less socially inhibited. So yes, it has an effect on our behavior, but that doesn't mean that I had an alcohol deficiency. So, so, so maybe that's, a, is, is a, maybe a, a better way to think about these, what these chemicals are doing, because they are having an effect on our serotonergic system. We know that that's been yeah. really well shown with animal models. Uh, so that's, there's, there's definitely a change that happens at the synaptic level and, and changing the amount of, of, of serotonin that's available within the synaptic cleft. So that does, there's definitely a change that happens, but whether or not the individual was deficient to begin with uh, is still something that no one has ever been able to adequately prove. Okay. And and, it's part of the problem, just understanding how the brain works in the first place, the complexity yeah, of this organ. I, I don't pretend to know everything. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> and you didn't just come through as a psychologist, you also came through as a neuroscientist, right? So That's right. Yeah, yeah. I do. Uh, I have a background in neurobiology. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so where anyway where uh, so so the controversy of the drugs there was something else I was going to oh, say but so 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 one one more thing on that then just to push you a little bit further mm -hmm. um, is around uh, around the differential effect for the for the developing brain especially through adolescence especially in the uh, frontal lobes and the hippocampus mm. and this idea of uh, reduced plasticity when you're on SSRIs and stuff, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean. There, there's certainly research that can be worrying if you if you choose to look at it, if you were taking these medications or considering using them for for children. And I think the, the you know, yeah, this is what I was going to say is just is that you've got to weigh up the pros and cons. You know, you've got somebody who's really, really distressed. And so the pros of using these medications may be that you might alleviate some of that suffering. Mm. But the, the cons are that there are definitely some well-established um, uh, neuronal changes that can happen when you are put on these me these medications and then long term it could also have you know uh, damaging effects as okay. well an uncertain an uncertain risk and that was really the controversy in your now very famous ted talk that um, there's yeah definitely the long-term effects right so yeah exactly a, cur a curative effect and when there may be evidence of harm yeah and so going back to that decision of you know using the ssris for mild to moderate some people might argue well we have to give it in order to harness the placebo effect but others will argue like irving kirsch will say but you're you're causing harm, so there must be a better way of harnessing the placebo effect than giving them something that they're going to be then addicted 
alluded to for the for for many many years, if not forever. I mean, I I know people in their 80s who can't come off of the some of the the benzos that they were put on uh, back in the you know the time of of, of mother's little helper. So yeah, yeah. It, it, so people want to. We'll put some links through to this, but um, Evan Kirsch's work is a sort of, he wasn't really a depression researcher as such as a placebo Correct. researcher yeah. and, and he really waded into the. He sure did. Sure and and did. I guess he's still in um, that mire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. The last medicines question is really around this change of diagnosis. So if you, you go to a psychologist or psychiatrist or a doctor and you get a diagnosis when you're a child versus an adolescent, then you see this really high level of diagnosis of, of ADHD for the younger ones. And that, yeah. that switches to a depression and anxiety diagnosis in the it can. Teenagers. What's going on there? Uh, Are they the same thing? Are we missing something or are we misdiagnosing or we're just misdiagnosing? I, oh, that's you're just asking a really tricky question. I don't know if I can give a great answer. I mean, I'm not, I have to say, after doing this research on nutrient interventions, yeah. and also even if you want to think about the dietary change uh, research where people manipulate diet and they see and see whether or not people get better, and also the countless number of stories I've heard over the years. If I put that together collectively, you can't help go that there's no box in our brain for ADHD and there's no special place for, for, for depression or no mm. special place for anxiety. We've got these, these, um, these uh, diagnoses uh, that are seen as helpful in in communication amongst uh, professionals and communication with clients, perhaps in sort of explaining away their problems. You know, this is what you've got is ADHD. We've got, you know, there's research that's got these links and risks that lead you to be more likely to express these symptoms. Uh, but I don't think they're there. I don't no longer see them as being these separate identities. Okay, that, I'm, that's I'm, a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm more interested in them as what are from the, from the, I think with the clients, the people who are struggling with these symptoms, what they're probably more interested in, and I might be a little bit wrong on this is that, um, they're interested in the symptoms that are impairing them. They're interested in like, that's what they want to see get better. They're not interested in per se that this diagnosis goes away. They want to, they want alleviation from suffering. Hmm. So do, do the diagnoses help us in that? Or do they kind of create this smoke screen of, you know, you have this disorder condition and therefore you need this type of treatment, which really fits well with a medical model. Uh, but I don't think we have enough Really, to I mean, and this is certainly being challenged a lot by many, many writers over the last decade or so, which is around: Do we have an adequate amount of data to really support these individual sort of cluster of categories? I don't know. Mm, okay, yeah, I, I, I have no idea what the answer was. So, <laughs> okay, well, I don't know either. So, but that's kind of some of my thoughts. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not as wedded as I was. I'm no longer as wedded to the diagnose diagnostic categories as I was when I first started training as a clinical psychologist. We do talk about the diagnostic categories in the book because they're there. People understand them. Uh, we felt we couldn't challenge everything in one book. So we, um, we had to kind of, we had to let go of kind of delving too much into the whole, did these diagnoses, you know, where's, where's the evidence for them? How solid is it? We chose to 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 not not go down that route because it would have taken a lot of more pages. Okay, well, let's talk more about the better brain and the nutrition side of things. I think it's time yeah. we actually get into the, the, the <laughs> sure. really interesting stuff. Uh, I guess the first thing I'm curious about 
uh, to update people from last time because there's been quite a lot of discussion about this um, and you and your colleagues, Neville Blampett and co have been writing uh, mm. journal articles and letters and, and, and yeah. things particularly about your your Stress. Christchurch earthquake and your post-traumatic stress yeah. data. Can we just talk about that for a moment, about the sure. role of nutrients and the accidental finding? Is it accidental? I guess you were doing a trial, then an earthquake came along, right? Exactly, pretty much, yeah. It was an accidental finding, for sure. Uh, that really, the so there was the September 2010 earthquake where we happened to have people who were taking nutrients and we happened to have people who weren't taking nutrients just based on where they were in a clinical trial. So we could ask this question of, People who are better nourished before a stressor comes along, do they are they do they recover more quickly from the stress of an earthquake? And the answer is yes, they do. Yes, they get stressed. Boom. Yeah, their stress levels go up after one week, but then they start to decline and they decline much more quickly in the people who weren't taking the nutrients. And which, how, are you, how are you measuring that? Because I think I saw some results that were big magnitudes, and I was like, "Whoa!" That's, yeah, that's oh, we were using the depression, anxiety, and stress scale, scale, which is pretty standard scale to use in experimental research. So that's measuring, asking questions. It's not doing it. I don't know if you're trying to um, ask whether or not we had biomarkers. We did. No, 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 no. I was just interested in the in the sort of size of the differences, and I, and I think I know. It yeah, it was large. It was a you know magnitude of I can't like over one you know one point in terms of effect size. Definitely, yeah, right. Very okay. large, so, and, very and, large differences. Yeah. So, uh, my and, memory and, of it. And just tell us about what you've been writing about that with with your your frustrations yeah. around translating <laughs> frustration, policy exactly. and, and the government taking it seriously oh, and that sort of thing. I know, I know. So I mean that that to me really opened up this idea that uh, nutrition provides us with a res with resilience and it, it makes us more resilient when we are when we are faced with stressors. I don't think there's any more stressors now than there were when, you know, for our ancestors. I mean, they they had their own issues. They didn't have antibiotics, they had constant infections, they've had pandemics, they've had wars. Hmm. You know, yeah, we can think that we live in a stressful time, but I, I don't think we could really strongly argue that it's any worse than it has before. But I think what may have changed is that because we've been eating ultra-processed food, and if you look at the data, it's very clear that half of our calories are coming from ultra-processed foods. And I think it was you, or maybe you gave me the statistic, I can't remember who, it was somebody in New Zealand, where two-thirds of the foods that are sold in a supermarket are ultra-processed. And yeah, so- that was the um, University of Auckland um Cleona's study, which I think they had in shopping trolleys at supermarkets at 69% yeah. of what people I mean, take home would be poor ultra processed. So it's pretty appalling. But it makes it, it checks out sort appalling. of as a sort of face validity, right? You sign it up next to someone in the supermarket and you glance, at, glance into their trolley. I mean, that's what you see. That's true. That's right. I, for, I I did this online, this MOOC, the Mass Open Online Access course, where I had to do these videos about what's ultra-processed food and what's processed food and what's real food just to educate. Yeah. And I had to go into a supermarket and just buy ultra-processed food. It was one of those, like, uh, like just, I was just... I, Ah, what's the word? Um, just so embarrassed about my trolley. So walking up and down the, the aisles, like right. grabbing Doritos. Like, and then I ran into an integrative physician in the community. <laughs> and she's looking at going, this this isn't what it looks like. And she's like, I'm not judging you. And I, the, I'm like, yes, work. you it's are. A, it's a work project. It's, it's a work project. I have. To, I had to spend $200 on ultra processed food. It was, it was, I mean, was it fun? It was an interesting thing, but it wasn't hard. It certainly wasn't hard to fill the trolley with a bunch of crap. So um, just to, to sort of explain an idea. So, but so we're, I guess your hypothesis and in, in your data, because you're really data driven, mm -hmm. a data driven yeah. scientist, uh, in the better brain is that nutrients, 
uh, especially when they can be applied in a you know, in a placebo randomized trial, which you can do with the sort of high That's dose right. nutrients that you're doing, and you're doing them at uh, not recommended allowances, but more maximum tolerable allowances. Higher, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, actually, have some benefit, and for some people, may be curative on absolutely on, on a, across a range of things. Yeah. And you've tended to concentrate on young people. Oh no, we've gone across across the ages. We're, we've got some adult trials, we've got child trials as well. Yeah. But even when you say that, I'm even now challenging the recommended dietary allowance numbers and metrics, and because and that's partly because I've looked at, I've I, I've done these graphs which I find really illustrate the the concept really nicely, where you 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 put on you put on the the y axis all your minerals and vitamins as many as I can fit on there, and then on your x axis you put, um, you know, I'm looking at the percentage that a food has relative to recommended dietary allowance. And so I go through a bunch of ultra processed foods like, you know, French fries and spam and uh, donuts and, you know, just, you know, th those you know, hot dogs, that kind of white bread, crackers, and the, and the number just doesn't even go above 20%. Right. So yeah, they're, they're in, devoid of nutrients. They are really devoid of the nutrients. And so I suppose you could work really hard at eating those foods to hit a hundred percent. You could probably, you could do it, but you probably wouldn't actually go that much higher. So you almost wonder whether or not this is a collusion between, you know, the ultra pro I, I got just, I'm probably making this up. But is it possible there's some kind of collusion between the food industry and these dietary recommendations that allow the foods to kind of fit within that? Yeah, that, they sort of exist in a space that's, that's, that's right. healthy, which is complete nonsense. And actually, yeah. there's no real nutrients in them at all. That's right. But then if you look at real foods and you do the same thing, um, you're actually going way over RDA if you're eating good foods. You're going to go way over. And and nobody's going, nobody's screaming and going, oh my God, don't eat too many vegetables because you're going to get too many nutrients out of your food. I've never heard that story. But then when it comes to taking nutrients in a pill form above that 100%, the, you know, everyone screams, they think you're killing people. You know, just, it's quite an interesting contrast. So I don't, I, I just wanted to challenge that whole concept that we're giving yeah, them at yeah. really no, that, high that, doses. That, that's a, yeah. a, a really good point. Yeah, but it's it's not until I graphed it that I was, I came to that conclusion that actually you can really easily go over hundred percent if you're eating real, whole, real whole foods, hopefully. And, and so, so the, the sort of nutrients that you're talking about in your, your supplements, let's just mine, run through those, but, but we're talking about zinc, magnesium, <laughs> yeah. copper, iron. Nothing's calcium, yep. uh, B12, folate, yep. what are some I'm missing out on? Uh, your vitamin A, D, C, um, your, yeah, the full, full array of, a, array of about 15 minerals that our, our plants get out of the soil yep. and about 15 vitamins that the, that the, that the plants will make uh, from when they up, the minerals are uptaken from the and, soil. And how do those plant. compare with even a sort of physician or, or practitioner grade multi that you can buy from you know, off the shelf sort of thing. These, these oh, are way stronger. Won't compare. Right? Won't compare. In fact, I almost I'm I'm at the point where I think the one a days are your ultra processed equivalent to what you really should be taking, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So, so they're just at that really really low level. This you'll survive with this, but you're not going to thrive with this. So okay, okay. So what advice? Here's a question that got thrown to me. I was giving a, a, a talk at a law firm a couple of weeks ago. We're talking about um, well being, but amongst other things, nutrients came up. Uh, questions at the end. Young lawyer at the back goes, you know, my parents just take all these supplements and I just I roll my eyes and think these people are out to lunch, my idiot parents. What do you think? They should just eat whole food, right? 
And I was like, well, I used to say that. Yeah. Let me tell you about Julia Rutledge's work. Right. Uh, and and I say, well, you know, and it's this this questions about what's actually even in our, our food, even the stuff that we would consider as whole food, unprocessed food, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables and, and you know. Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's. Animals a, and stuff. Yeah. What, what I mean, that, say about that? Well, I mean, that's something that we spend a whole chapter on in the book is looking at soil health and uh, the mineral content of our soils and that we're not replenishing them with adequately with all the full array of minerals. We think about just throwing a few in. It's just like ultra processed food in a way. We're just throwing a few in and yeah. and thinking that that's going to be adequate. And so we're coming really, and it's amazing how many farmers and soil scientists have been contacting me saying, you're so right. Where our soils are really a massive problem in New Zealand that they aren't, you're not even even, you just we're barely hit, we're not hitting how much they should be for an ideal and, soil and this is, climate. It's the speed of growing and the time of storage make any difference? I, I, I it certainly makes sense that it should it, it'll affect it. Is that the faster it grows, the less opportunity it has to take the minerals up from the soil, and so uh, we've and then we select for those foods. I mean, I get the the the, the challenge. We've got a lot of mouths to feed, and so uh, selecting crops that are going to grow quickly, store well, transport well look beautiful it's go, is is going to be the top priority and not its nutritional density so we've got a bit, we've got some pretty major challenges to to overcome to get to a place where our soil is adequately providing the nutrients that that plant needs but then we throw things on it and we throw glyphosate on it and then we put glyphosate on mm-hmm. to, to as the desiccant right at the end of the crop growth and that's just you know that that has an effect of just going into it gets goes into the soil it's a it's a they, it's a chelator holds onto the minerals and then washes it can wash it away oh, in the next I, rainfall. I, didn't, I, I was yeah. unaware of that. That's interesting, isn't I, it? I know. Yeah, no, that's something that I've just learned from a toxicologist is that you know the the effect it can have once it enters the soil. So there's there's some worrying things there uh, that we've got to be aware of and and understand that it's having an effect on on human health. And it won't just be uh, mental; it'll be physical too. So just to save people emailing you which i imagine thousands of people do yes uh and so i know the answer when people ask me mm-hmm. uh, you know the question i'm going to ask you it's like i don't know what i've read your trials i want to get some of these high dose things yeah. either for myself or if, uh, mm-hmm. example last friday son of a someone we met who had yeah a, 16-year-old boy who had had attempted suicide the previous week and they've mm. read your stuff and they want to get these high-dose nutrients. Yeah. How, how or where can they do that? How do you even go about doing such a thing? Yeah, I mean, the, the nutrients that we've studied, it's not a secret, but I tend not to just go around advertising it because I don't sell them and yeah. I can always look like I'm 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 in cahoots with the industry and I'm just here to make a whole bunch of money off supplements. I'm not. No money comes to work to me at all. But the ones that we've studied the most is daily essential nutrients, which is available in New Zealand. Yep. The challenge though here, Grant, is that the uh, that the laws in New Zealand and of course overseas are such that they make it really difficult to take supplements in a therapeutic dose. So the the regulation and i and i do think this is some, this conversation has to happen if we're going to move into thinking we're going to use more supplements for the treatment of mental health issues is that 
supplements are regulated as foods in New Zealand, not as medicines. Mm -hmm. And there's a few that are regulated as medicines, like say, for example, lithium or, or folic acid. It can be prescribed to women during pregnancy or vitamin D at a higher level, that kind of thing. But for the most part, supplements are regulated as foods. And that means that you cannot have a therapeutic benefit to it. So it's a, it's a minefield for consumers to kind of go, well, what do I buy? You know, do I go into a supermarket to buy one of these one a days? Well, I'll going to basically say that I don't think the doses are going to be adequate if for those one a days. But then to get access to the nutrients that do have therapeutic benefit, you've got to be, you know, you've got to work around the legislation to make sure that it's done legally. And so the way, the way this is managed is that you've got in order to buy the nutrients and use them at the doses that are therapeutic that we've shown in the clinical trials, you need your doctor to be involved. So they, it's like using it almost like an unapproved medicine. That would be. But, the, but people can, and people want, want that insurance. So, so people could go ahead and do that. Like they can talk to. They their could do that. Yes, exactly. Say, and I've that's, been looking at these trials, and I'm really interested in this. Yeah. And my son, this, or but my daughter, have, this, or whatever. Yeah, but they have to get the physician to agree to it. And as yeah. as we know, not all physicians are well educated on supplements, and so they'll often say, "Well, that's a waste of your money." To, you know, don't go down that route. There's no evidence that kind of, uh, you know, that but, kind but of line. Intelligent people can print out the randomized trials, can't they? You'd hope so, but they yeah. don't always bother because they've been sold the idea that supplements don't work, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly, you know, I hear physicians will tell me that it's just expensive urine. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I, I, I'm, you know, I'm respectful of your education, but it's, it's wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, you need to, you know, here's an updated, here's all the updated evidence. And it's not like I publish it in crap journals either. I've gotten this research published in a really good journal. So it's not like it's not out there. It's not, it doesn't exist. It's just people choose not to read it. It doesn't fit with their medical worldview. It'd be hard. It's hard to change. It's hard to change the way we think about medical illnesses or these psychiatric illnesses. And so it takes time uh, for people to kind of get their head around it. I think it's happening. Like I know that there's more and more people who are physicians who are getting interested, but it's just, it takes, it's slow, but, and, and, but the public don't have time to wait for them to catch up. And that's why I just wanted to explain the challenges of getting access to the nutrients. It's not always yeah. simple. And that's because of the legislation. So but it, is it is absolutely, there's a workaround around it to get access to them. It's you, you could, you could buy them and not use them at the therapeutic dose. Cause that's the only way it's allowed to be sold in New Zealand. Is it a dose that does doesn't work that we or at least that we haven't used in our clinical trials but you know people hopefully will understand that that's what it has to say on the bottle but then you need to know what was used in the clinical trial so it's it shouldn't be this way you shouldn't have to do this kind of workaround because pharmaceutical medicines are the only ones that are allowed to have a therapeutic claim associated with them i'm allowed to say as a researcher yes it treats symptoms associated with adhd yeah the people so what do you make of those um, and i got no, i'm not selling these or anything so i'm just interested um yeah i, I sort of used a bit with my kids so you can buy these other sort of uh i guess they're multi-nutrient yeah things like this good green vitality or these athletic greens you know these sort of green sure. powder yeah things. or nutrient rescue all of yep what do you make yeah um i don't i'm they sound like really good and they're probably at a dose that's really uh, adequate i would imagine and i know that there's lots of anecdotal uh, reports about the benefits i've heard of nu um, nutrient rescue for example is one of those powders that you you yeah. mix with some water uh, but they haven't been tested no. for 
the treatment of the mental health issues that we're talking about. So I can't say yes or no. Um, I suppose, you know, what's the harm in trying it and seeing yeah. whether or not you feel better? Because that's the bottom line is not whether or not your diagnosis goes away. It's whether or not you're, you're, uh, you're operating to the optimal that you want to operate at. But, so. but and I, I guess part of the struggle, not for us adults, but us as parents, and I know you're a parent and, and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I'm dealing with either teenagers or, yeah. Or, or slightly younger or older teenagers or on that category, you know, it's not always easy to convince them to eat no. everything that you'd like them to eat. And they they, they you know, have a tendency to, to go way off the reservation on occasions. And so you're sort of trying to get Insurance. things. I ask my parents yeah. all the time the same thing. What, what's your hmm. response to that? About whether or not oh, in those about, cases, you know, feeding your feeding your feeding your teenagers. Feeding yeah, your I know. There, I've got I've got a grazer. Well, he eats a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, lot, lot. Yeah, those teenage boys. Um, I, I I agree that that can be a huge. It is a huge challenge, and I don't know if what you're where where we could go with this is saying that. Um, that our, our nutritional environment out there in our society and our community is one that's really toxic and that in order we really need to do something about changing changing our, our really toxic food environment that's available to teenagers uh, because that's what they crave. They often crave those ultra-processed foods. Mm. That's what they've grown up on. And, uh, you know, oftentimes I hear that challenge of how do you get them to eat the real food? And I think that shouldn't be shouldered by the one parent that needs to be shouldered by our entire community that says enough is enough. There isn't a single study that's shown that these foods are good for us. And yet we, we seem to think that they're nourishing for life. And, you know, when do we, when are we going to say, when is our government going to come out with the type of legislation what that really, really needs to happen? Kind of like tobacco. That's where I think the conversation needs to go. So, but I, uh, I know that's not answering your question particularly well, well, it is, adequately. It is, it also gets a bigger issue, right? So we did a full review of mental health, in, at least in New Zealand, and this has happened in virtually every Western country because of the same crisis. Uh, and you look at the documentation and, and the recommendations that have come out in this country and other countries. Why is nutrition not even a topic? I, I think it's mentioned four or five times in <laughs> I mean, I the know. report, and it's not in any specificity. I've been yeah, sure. and it and it certainly wasn't mentioned in the mental health report that was yep. given to the government in 2018. Yep. Um, why is that the case? I, I I can I mean, is it is it a, a number of different issues? Is it the number one is that nutrition has been for a long time viewed as being irrelevant to brain health? So it's not even on the radar. So when you do, you know, the, so we just don't even bother putting it on the radar. Um, I, but I also think that we've got really some pretty strong, strong and powerful industries that are going to that are going to prevent that kind of message from coming out. I mean, mm. I even think about, you know, I think about the the ultra processed foods uh, and the and say even just the nutritional facts that are on there, right? The uh, the on the back of a, an ultra processed food package, although it does, it might be on some real foods too. You'll, you'll get it on yogurt, uh, you're on your yogurts or, or your milk. It might also give you the nutritional facts, 
But for the most part, the focus is on the macronutrients. It's on the fats, the carbs, the fats, the carbs, and the proteins, and not on its micronutrient content. Very, very little information is given about its micronutrients. You might mm-hmm. get one or two, but you're not going to get that full array. And that's, I, I assume, that's because if they were forced to put the thirty, how well are they doing in terms of your essential micronutrients? They would have a whole bunch of zeros. And so there's there's been this <laughs> very be clever, yeah, yeah, they, they, the ones they, that are essential. They, so they've they've got this very i mean it's i i assume it's only clever to think about or force the the public to think about foods from its macronutrient content and not even bother thinking about those micronutrients that we know are so essential for brain activity so there's a lot that's working against the parent you've got the star ratings that are supposed to help us in making good choices but there you yeah, know I mean, that's I, an endorsement of ultra processed food isn't it i just it, want to stand totally, up yes it is it is and as i like to say is that a cardboard box would get a four star rating because it's low in energy it's low in saturated fats it's low in sodium and it's low in sugar that doesn't mean you have to eat it. No, what no, kind correct. of that's a, a, that's a well said, well said. I think we're going to quote that one. Yeah, what, what kind of star rating system means that an, a, a cardboard box or my, you know, this this glass, you know, this book, my book would get a four star four four star rating. Well, for, I was giving it a five star rating, but this is on a different rating. Yes, fair enough. But it, you know, that's that's the a crazy system where it's based on what's not in the food rather than what's in the food. There's only one star that's given to having a. a one nutrient in there, or maybe some fiber, you'll get a star for that. Fortified with iron, you'll get oh, a star so what for do you that. Make a fortification then, that sort of randomly adding nutrients to up and go or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's. I suppose it's going in the. I mean, it is a good idea. Fortification was a good idea. It comes from. I think it, the history is that it comes from pellagra, which was a uh, was viewed as an infectious disease back in the 1930s, and uh, it was uh, it was a good story. It was a good science story where the the guy I can't remember the name, guy who discovered it, but he. He said, no, 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 it's caused by a nutrient deficiency. And, and he, he was so confident in his uh, in his hypothesis that he, he put his wife in, not himself, his wife in with a bunch of pelagrins and, and she didn't get pelagra. So he, you know, he dispelled the myth that it was an infectious disease and it was associated with the food that they were eating and the deficiency. That led to the uh, fortification with niacin. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's where some of the other ones, uh, you know, soon, soon follow. Because uh, that's when we started to better understand the B vitamins uh, that exist in our food. So it's got a, an interesting history to it. And interestingly, a lot of uh, psychiatric admissions back in the 1930s and 1940s were were psychosis as a consequence of pellagra or wow. or a nutritional deficiency. So it's something we knew in our history, but we've kind of forgotten it. And it's no longer, you'll never find it in the DSM anymore, but it used to be in there, was that nutritional deficiency was a cause of mental illness. Amazing. Yeah, right. Hey? So, oh, that's, yeah. That's, that's fascinating, isn't it? History's yeah. Almost. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. So it's an interesting story. So I just think we've lo- we lost our way. We've been lulled into you know big pharma and big food has lulled us into these really simplistic ways of thinking about health, um, how to live, and I'm hoping that we kind of reverse some of those trends and go back to a more holistic style of living. Okay. So. When I actually very first met you, you didn't meet me. I was just watching your TED talk, uh, and you open it with something that I've actually copied myself because I thought it was a great. That's okay. Uh, it's not mine. Line, but it was about uh, Igor Semmelweis's yeah. uh, work, and then um, I don't know if I 
you also mentioned James Lind, who did the. That's right. Yeah, the randomized the trials with with, uh, yep, with Lyme. With limbs and limes, uh, and and there's there's various other ones as well, um, including the other way around. I'll tell you the one the other way around with James Halstead, who invented the radical mastectomy for uh, breast cancer. Okay. Um, without evidence, and 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 you know, after some half a million of these operations, where ten percent of women would die on the table, mm-hmm. uh, another fellow, Bernard Fisher, came along in the 1950s. You know, hundred years after this has been done started and said, hey, why don't we do a trial? Because I don't know if this is the best thing. Maybe we should just do a lumpectomy. And everyone's like, oh, no, this is ridiculous. This is a standard of practice. And it turns out, you know, it's equivalent and you could have saved, and it saves lives. All right. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it was just more to the point of science getting done and then practice taking a long time to catch yeah, up now. I know. Uh, how do you feel about that with you? And I, and I just want to put it on context with me as well, because I started my career in physical activity and health, and I've spent the second half of it more in nutrition and health. But when I started in New Zealand in physical activity and health, we were the most active country in the world. Um, and, and 25 years later, after all the work I've done there, we're now um, slipped to the middle of the OECD. Right, right. So, uh, you know, basically anything I've done has had no effect in this country. <laughs> Right. <laughs> How am I going worry to worry you about your good work? Yeah, it does. It does certainly worry me. And then I think I, you know, just to finish the story that I was telling earlier, the about stress and and that research um, is that after you know we did we after that study I told you about in 2010 where we showed the importance of nutrition for foundational resilience. We then went to show that you could alleviate stress following a stressful event and and reduce levels of PTSD, etc. And then we replicated that. And there's a whole bunch of research on B vitamins versus placebo showing that it's beneficial of, uh, to reduce stress. And so I, I've shared all of that with politicians. And when the mosque shooting occurred in, 20, in 2019, March 15th, uh, I did everything I could to, to say, look, we've got enough evidence here uh, of using nutrients to help people who have faced are facing a really traumatic stressor, a trauma, traumatic event. There was money, money pouring into Christchurch to help the mosque, the victims of the mosque attack, but I could not get anyone to be take the risk. It's I wouldn't even call it a risk, but to have the courage to do something different than what we were doing already. So which nothing is, happened. Nothing happened, um, except that we, as a lab, I, I felt I couldn't stand and do nothing. So we raised money and we gave the nutrients away and we monitored them, monitored them clinically, and we showed the same effect that we had showed with the earthquakes and the flood. Uh, that's the work that you were talking about uh, that I did with Neville Lampe. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. we published an editorial about how hard it was, all the roadblocks that were put in our way. That um, it was ju- it was just a remarkable time of people just saying you can't possibly take these risks you can't do this and we did it and we then we showed the benefit and then since then i've then gone back to all those committees that said we're not going to do it and i've presented them with the latest data and they just come back and they say oh well that's just observational it doesn't change our opinion uh and Hmm. and you just you're kind of like what plot like do you do you have any desire to help the people in your community <laughs> you're okay about giving them benzos that they don't want you're okay to give them psychotherapy by translation which doesn't have any research to support it right i mean psychotherapy does but not by translation so there's mm-hmm. an assumption that it works via uh, an interpreter uh, and so they're okay to do all of that but they wouldn't they wouldn't 
open the door to giving them the micronutrients and they still wouldn't. And with the floods, you know, the Canterbury floods that just happened, yeah, I tried again. Same thing. Same thing. Yeah, try, same thing. And I'm like, I, there's only so much I can do. I just, and when you, I, when you go into your iPad or however you read the newspaper yeah. and you see another discussion yeah. about mental health and no yeah. mention ever of nutrients and all ambulance of the clip. How, how do you feel and what <laughs> do you <laughs> That's right. yeah, thanks grant you know oh, yeah, this is, not, like this is the opposite of therapy <laughs> that's oh. right I know. you should feel depressed by now um <laughs> it's despairing it is despairing in a way um in and it it can't you can kind of go i should just why am i why am i hitting my head against this brick wall and uh and i i suppose i i, I guess i see myself as being you know having some level of resilience and optimism that you know if you you try hard enough you can change and i've got to, i've got to stay there or i might as well give up now and right, the, I and i and i know that i'm i'm making a difference on an individual level i know that i've helped thousands of people all around the world with this research i and, and you get others. Missing- on that basis, right? All the time, thousands and thousands of messages. And so that happens. I've had so many messages about the book, you know, just really mostly positive, like, you know, a few grumbles, as you mentioned, (laughs) but overall, really, really positive feedback. And so you've got to go with that. And then, you know, can't, you can, maybe it's just got to be a grassroots movement. Maybe that's I don't I don't know what the solution oh, no, I've, is. I've come to that conclusion. I, I think that's the only way. I, I think don't think it's going to come from above. They've no, got and if you too wait many. for that, you're going to be so terribly disappointed. Yeah, um, I, so, I know. So part of our job as as researchers and scientists and practitioners in the community is to be part of engaging with that community. Exactly, and that's I certainly spend a lot of time engaging with the community. So that's you, you can't fault me on that. On I've done so many public talks, so many ta- you know speak, speaking engagements. So I know there are people. Well, out that's there the other encouraging thing, though. Um, is they're that, invited. What, yeah, that, that, that you're not turning up to an empty house here, right? Never. Uh, no. Oh, they're selling out. They sell. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, I I do the one at you know these UC Connect ones at the university, and they take out the biggest auditorium, and they always double it in terms of the, and they have to put them into the overflow. And so that's, that's not unusual. Um, I did a book launch at Scorpio books the other day and it was just, the room was absolutely completely packed. And so that's, that's pretty cool that yes, it's, it attracts, it attracts the attention. Uh, TED, TEDx is now 1.8 million views, yeah. which isn't bad because a million of those have got, I've gotten those since the flag went up. So, uh, you know, don't watch this talk cause it's going to, it's going to, I find that one of the more astonishing things in the, Universe, yeah. Frankly. Yes, I know. Uh, so which we've talked about before, but yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, I know the audience is there. Um, we, I know that it's, it, it is already sold. The book has already sold thousands of copies in New Zealand. I don't know if that's good or not. And for after two months of launch, maybe you have a bit of insight on oh, that. Oh no, I, I mean, you, you seem to be on fire. And I talk to all these people, and they know about the better brain. Good. So that's, that's great. great. And, yeah. And they can get it on. You can get a Kindle as well. You yeah, can. Just, you can. Away you go, and mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I, I think it's. I mean, writing a book's not a not a small undertaking, right? No, 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 it's not exact, not at all. Um, and I think it would complement the what the fat for sure, because yeah. yeah. you know, you, I mean, we we were asked. There are recipes in there, which I always find is quite amusing, um, because I'm a psychologist, not a cook, um, I'm not a chef, but that's kind of you know that's what the editor said. We you know we needed to be able to really handhold people, you know, say okay. When we mean the Mediterranean diet, when we mean real food, yeah. this is what it looks like. 
And so we hired a chef because I felt we needed that level of sort of just like you you collaborated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. laughs that I'm on a on on. A, uh, yeah, right. Book, yes, like, exactly. Embarrassing for you, and I was like, no, yeah. what? I've done all the science. Come on. Exactly, and you collaborated with a chef yeah. and with a nutritionist, and so you absolutely. I mean, you got this. You you did amazing in terms of getting the the that credibility behind the book and. Yeah. That's what we did as well was to to get a, a chef involved in the recipe development so that we didn't, you know, it wasn't us coming up with these recipes. It was somebody who uh, and the good recipes. It. I hope so. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think we got a good balance. I mean, we ha- we were limited on words and all those challenges you have yeah. with a book, but yeah. Oh, and I think you're gonna find it some fire. I mean, I think with the, what the fat now, we've probably sold three hundred thousand. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I mean it's and- including the Kindles because they they count for a bit of volume, but that's um, that sounds like a really great number. We're never, we're certainly no. No, you will. You'll get that. They, yeah. They, um, yeah. Purely because you're you're a little bit more focused than we were on a, such an important problem. So yeah, hopefully. And I think that's and, and people are struggling to know what to do. And I, 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 you know, let's look at parents particularly, and it breaks my heart. Of parents with, um, particularly adolescents with more serious anxiety and depression. Yeah. issues amongst other things and having no nowhere to go nowhere to nowhere go, to go. Like, and nowhere to go can you imagine well you can imagine you know about I it. can I know uh, and I what I I hope that this you know if you read this book and you just got the basic information about where to start you don't have to see I don't think you have to see a professional to to start making steps towards changing your diet um I don't think you know the, uh, people feel that they need to be monitored maybe that's because it's just inbred in us about taking supplements uh to you know make sure there's no harm but I think people can take a lot more control of their health and to take steps that they can do on their own without having to rely on these professionals that don't exist. So um, they're just not out there. So I, I do hope that it gives a lot of people that kind of courage and the, you know, the, the, the confidence to, to get started on a, a journey of wellness. Uh, and right, have you got your copy that you can just hold up for everyone and we can get I do, but it's hard it. to, because it's this, I've got the blur version on. Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, bring it for there. That's it. That's it. We've got it. The better brain. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great read, folks. So, so get into it. Um, it's, it's all about the nutrients. So, thanks, Julia. Appreciate it. Thank you. I, I enjoyed that. You've been listening to Preventionist Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, with me, Professor Grant Schofield. At Precure, we're developing a way to help medicine help change the world. We're filling that gap. We're helping train health coaches and mental health coaches. We're bringing short but effective behavior change programs over 29 days to you to help you learn for yourself and help others as well be healthier. We're trying to create a community of like-minded people, people like you who want to use the latest science and practice to change lives for the better. Join us at Precure.com. Get involved in our communities. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Precure.com. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight